Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we have a Summer Clips episode for you. It features curator George Shackelford. He put together Monet the Late Years, which has just opened at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. The exhibition includes canvases Monet made at the end of the 19th century and in the mid-19-aughts, but primarily considers the paintings Monet made between 1913 and his death in 1926. The show debuted this past spring at San Francisco's de Young Museum. Monet remains on view in Fort Worth through September 15th. The Kimball published the catalog. It's quite good. Amazon offers it for about 40 bucks. George Shackelford, after the break. This summer at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, see Barbara Hammer in this body world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and LGBT cinema icon. Cecilia Vicuña, Lo Precario, The Precarious, a collection of more than 50 of the Chilean-born artists' lyrical, intimately scaled sculptures, and Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Celebrate art, wine, and culture this summer by signing up for Bacchus Uncorked. Three Saturday evening programs at the Getty Villa July 13th, July 27th, and August 3rd. Enjoy presentations on Roman culture and wine. Then taste Italian wines while taking in the villa's stunning architecture and gardens. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O. Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O Natural is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. So nice to be here. Thanks. Monet's late period. How did you choose to define it and why did you choose the definition you chose? Let me start uh, at the beginning to say that the Kimball Art Museum, where I work and from which the exhibition was organized, possesses two paintings by Monet. One painted when he was 24 and the other painted when he was 78. So as you know from our 
previous conversation, we did Monet the early years, a couple of years ago. And so it was now time to do Monet the late years. And for me, what I wanted to think about was the really the last decade or so of Monet's life. In 1914, he experiences a real, I don't know, a real reawakening of, of interest in painting and a new vigor. And he then changes his art pretty much completely until the end of his days in 1926. So for me, that was what late Monet meant. But in terms of the exhibition, I really didn't want to start in 1914, because if you started with the most revolutionary work, instead of showing something before it, then the revolution wouldn't seem so powerful. So the first part of this exhibition, Monet the Late Years, is in a way to kind of lull the visitor into the sensation that everything is as it, as it would be expected. So beautiful water lilies, beautiful Japanese bridge, beautiful view of the Seine, wonderful paintings of the house and the pond painted in 1913. And then they turn the corner and whammo, the paintings are four times as big and the brushstrokes four times as large. And, and it's a real visual impact at that point. So that's why the late years defined in that kind of tight way. Well, let's start with 1897 then, because you mentioned providing some grounding for visitors as as they come into the show. What were those late 19th century paintings you chose, and how is their treatment of water and its opacity different from what we're going to see kind of at the outset of World War I? Well, the paintings from 1897 are specifically the group that are called generically Mornings on the Seine. They were sometimes called Matinee matinee sur la Seine, or the Bras de Seine matinee, or some kind of version of morning Seine river notation. And it's a whole group that deals with a pretty much complete up-down reflection where what is in the background and the trees that are in the near ground are reflected pretty much like a Rorschach block along a horizon line that generally is close to the center of the canvas. So what you get is the trees and the sky that are above the horizon, then being doubled below and forming an inverted pattern of light and dark so that the light, for instance, which would generally be seen as being above the tree is now sort of floating in the water below the tree And you get a very specifically unsettling sense of maybe vertigo or what's up, what's down. So picking paintings like that, which in a way predict, or let's put it this way, they don't really predict the water lily paintings of 1903 to 5, but it's a a step in a research that would eventually allow Monet to move the horizon line higher and higher and higher and therefore the the percentage of sky and trees become seen not in reflection but in fact straight on becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually the horizon line goes over the top of the canvas and all you're looking at is the reflection 
So in a couple of paintings from 97 and 99, we show him gearing up to that. And then a group of paintings painted between 1904 and 1907, we see him really exploiting that. And then we see what comes after that. But there's also a painting from 1897 in the exhibition that has traditionally been dated to the 19-teens. And I think the reason why it was dated so much later has to do with the fact that it is so big. And I'm convinced, and I think everybody who sees the show now is in agreement, that it must have been painted in 1897. And it's the very first group of complete reflection water lily studies that were kind of on their way to becoming the big decorations that he recommenced after 1914 and, and particularly around 1918, 19 and so forth. Yeah, as I, as I looked through the catalog, I thought to myself that in especially kind of the mornings on the Seine paintings that Monet is kind of getting, I don't know, comfortable is not the word, but maybe comfortable with reflection, which is something that we think of, you know, that Americans are familiar with through American art. I mean, Emerson's Nature in 1836 is substantially about reflection, and American painters seize on that metaphor and, and milk it for all it's worth for the next six decades. But in French painting of, you know, the mid to late 19th century, reflection is not a thing like that. <laughs> it's pretty good in Corot, who, yeah. of course, was the, the sort of model for, for much of the early Monet. And in fact, in, in Monet's work, you know how important reflection is, even in the very yeah. early years. But it's the notion of taking it to that, to that state where when all you're looking at is reflection, You've, yeah, you've made it into a kind of a of a kind of existential question. You know, where am I? What am I looking at? You know, has my world turned upside down? All of those kinds of discombobulating emotions come into play. Yeah, and in these four paintings from from the nineteen aughts, oh four to seven, the water and the lilies don't just fill the frame, as you mentioned. There is this blurring between what is reflection and what is flora, if you will. So as you, as, you, as you pointed out, he's tilting the pond up toward the picture plane. And in this period, Matisse and the Fauves are using color to flatten pictorial space in Central Europe. Klimt is using color and decoration to do something similar. The Nobbies have been playing with the idea themselves. How much did those early modernist experiments inform Monet in these years? You know, honestly, I think I have to say not much. Mm, that was kind of what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's not just, it's not because it would reflect badly on Monet if he did take something from any of those things. But I don't think he was, I, I, he certainly had no idea of Klimt. He knew some of the Nobbies early, early on and did have interactions with them. But that really mostly comes way after they have done the stuff that you would think would be mattering for the beginnings of Monet as a kind of decorative painter. And when he came to know Bonar, they were really good friends. But that's really after Bonar buys a house across the river from him, and they become frequent visitors to each other. And so I think... I, I would also argue, and it's just a matter of 
age versus youth, that Bonar took away more from their encounters than Monet did because so much of what Monet does is just an acceleration or an expansion or an intensification of a pathway or a a set of ideas that he had proposed early on in his life and which have been preoccupying him for the last 40 years, if you will, by the time we get to 1904 or five. And so I think we're seeing him also in increasing retreat from the the action really of of what's going on in Paris or any place else in Europe and where he really is focusing on a world that he has created for himself as a a sort of farm of motifs, if you will. There's a great snapshot in the catalog from 1926. So, you know, 20 years on from the period we're talking about now of Monet and Bonnard in, uh, in Monet's garden. It's, it's a, <laughs> it's a fun candid. And it's really, and that's the last year of Monet's life also, you know, so Bonnard, if you can imagine in that year buys his first residence in the South of France at Le Canet. And in fact, a couple of years later, and I would say inspired by the, by the kind of dimensions and scale of a Monet painting. He paints this fantastic landscape that Kimball Art Museum just bought last fall, which is this kind of dreamy worldview of the view around his house. And so that's where he's headed at the same time that he's been seeing in Monet's studio over the past decade, the big, horizontal, very wide, expansive views of, uh, of Monet's pond. So I think that I think that there's a very fruitful uh, interaction between the two of them at that even at that very late moment in Monet's art. So to move on beyond this group of paintings that Monet makes, kind of between '04 and '08, paintings looking down at the water that eliminate the horizon line, it's probably necessary to touch on a bit of a biography. Monet is struck by several family tragedies. What were they, and how did they impact? Not not really his painting, but kind of his ability to, or his, even his interest in painting over the next few years. Well, you know, Monet really is a family man. By this time in his life, has not only his two sons, the sons of his first wife, Camille Dancieux, and they are Jean and Michel, but he also has the wife, or, or rather the companion, that he has lived with pretty much since the death of Camille, whose name is Alice Oshede. And the Oshedes were early collectors of Monet's work. And Ernest and Alice sort of separate. They don't divorce, but they separate. And Monet and Alice form a couple. And with her come all of her children. So there is suddenly this household of kids who are between the ages of one or two and 10 or 11 or or their early teens, let's say. And Monet grows, those kids grow up with Monet fundamentally as their father. And so when they move to Giverny in 1883, and then when he succeeds in buying the property in the early 90s, and then when he enlarges the property in the 
excuse me, the 1890s. It's all as a kind of fantastic family compound. Just before 1910, Elise is diagnosed with a heart disease, which eventually kills her in 1911. And so here is Monet, who is at this point 70 years old and is widowed. And the period leading up to her death is very, very tense. And she dies, and he's kind of thrown into a deep state of mourning. He comes out of it to finish a group of paintings that he had executed in a kind of holiday in in Venice in 1908, has an exhibition of them, and fast on the heels of that, his son Jean begins to get worse and worse in terms of health. And so Jean is an invalid in Monet's house, installed in the room that had previously served Monet as a kind of a a salon or a a living room hung with paintings from his, his, his history as an artist with a lot of family connections being, being displayed on those walls. And there's Jean in the living room of his house where he has to come through every day and he's watching his son die. And so Jean dies in the spring of 1914. Monet had just begun to paint a few things in 1913 after sort of coming out of his mourning for Alice. And then Jean dies in the spring of 14. And contrary to the sort of work stoppage that he experienced after Alice's death, a few months after Jean's death, he experiences this inspiration, a kind of like out of the blue, mad energy to paint again. And he acquires a huge number of canvases of a much larger size than he's used to, and we're off. But but it's fascinating that he's coming into this period of really dynamic intensity, following on a period of domestic tragedy for him, for him, the death of his wife and of his firstborn child. And then out of it, he springs into this new period of of real energy. And it's like somebody shook him and woke him up, uh, but he was doing it himself. You argue in the catalog, I think, that about now, in in, in mid to late 1914, that Monet rediscovers some paintings from 1897, presumably in his studio or somewhere near it anyway. What did he rediscover and what impact did they have on him? Well, you know, the, it, the story is that he rediscovers them, and I don't really contradict that. But on the one hand, it makes me wonder, how can you have this clump of paintings and forget about them? Let's put it this way. When he made them in the 1890s, in the second half of the 1890s, he kind of knew what he was doing. He was expanding scale. The the scale of the water lilies to the overall size of the canvas was relatively large. He retreats from that almost literally in terms of pulling back from the motif so that everything becomes smaller between 1904 and 1908. And then in 1914, he starts where he left off 
1897 with bigger canvases and with bigger motif, the, the motif treated more largely than he had done before. And so there is this real exploration of a vision that he had had but had, had not pursued, but with, an, with a, really an entirely new technique. The difference between a painting of 1907 and 1914 is phenomenal. The 1914 painting will literally be twice as wide and twice as tall as the 1907 painting, but it will show exactly the same number of, of water lily pads and the same disposition of them, let's say. So as a consequence, everything gets bigger. The, literally, his brushes get bigger. So he's starting, you know, to buy brushes that are, instead of being a quarter inch wide, with maybe even a slightly pointed end or tip of the of the of the brush bristles, he's got a three quarters or you know sometimes even a, an inch and a quarter wide brush, often with a flat sort of tip, which gives him these quite large strokes. And the ability, a bit like when you're writing with a, a flat-nibbed pen, to go from wide to very thin, really quite suddenly. The shape of his brush strokes is even a bit more fluid, more calligraphic, shall we say, than he ever had been in uh, in the 19 aughts. Let's and so by the teens, he's just he's he's taking off. And when you see them in the exhibition and when you see the, the variation of stroke, the variation of thickness, the juxtaposition of ground, if you will, like maybe the sort of underlying water tone and then the, 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 the tones and the shapes and the outlining of things that are appearing on top of the water, there's, there's a kind of frenetic quality to it. And indeed, he writes to his friends describing how busy he is, how much he's enjoying himself, how will they excuse him? He's far too busy painting to come give them a visit. And it's like he's, he's suddenly discovered himself again. I think that outlining you mentioned is one of the most immediately striking elements of these paintings from the teens. The Fine Arts Museum's painting or the Portland painting, Portland, Oregon painting, are both good examples. He's kind of using these outlines, which aren't in, in, in the paintings from the aughts, to kind of suggest the way the lilies move on top of the water. Absolutely. And combined with those sort of circular, let's say you're outlining a pancake motions, he often uses an exaggerated vertical stroke that might be quite long, and he sometimes then goes back and interrupts it or breaks it. But that reference to the, not shown immediately in the painting, the swaying, moving branches of a weeping willow tree, that then gives you another, another dimension so that he's really exaggerating the vertical movement and the horizontal movement, which is usually made up of groupings of oval things or round things that are kind of gathered together in little islands against the the more 
striated, sometimes quite ragged vertical strokes that that are the reflection of what is even beyond the other bank of the pond. All of this kind of implied because you might at first not recognize exactly what you're looking at. Once you do, interestingly enough, know, once you've cracked Monet's codes for these juxtapositions of dark and light vertical strokes are all about the the lily branch and the shadow behind it or the shadow between it and another branch. Once you begin to recognize that, then you marvel at how he is balancing the water and its surface, or rather the the depth of the world into space, the flat receding plane of the water, which he tries to tip up as much as possible, but he does in fact decrease the size of every lily pad as you go from bottom of the canvas into the distance. So you know you're looking at something in perspective, but at the same time, it seems to be this wonderfully, the verticality gives you this kind of wonderful flat feeling of something that is always at the same distance from you. And so it's a, it's a, it's a tour de force of, of spatial organization that I don't think anybody had ever done quite so imaginatively before him. We're talking about 14 and 15, and, and so there are two very different <laughs> big things going on in, in 14 or 15. The second one, which we'll come back to in a moment, is that Monet builds a new studio and, and why. But before we get to that, I want to talk about World War I. Does the beginning of the war have an impact on Monet and his work? Well, it has an impact on the family because both one of his sons-in-law and his son, Michel, his younger son, are drafted and go to the army. So there is an immediate level of worry that is there from the end of 14, you know, from the, the, the end of the first six months of his reawakening, whammo in August, you know, war is declared and starts getting moving and troops start getting assembled for the, you know, truly worthless, slaughter that takes place you know, on the western edge of France on the uh, on the the in Belgium and in in the sort of northeastern provinces of of departments of, of France where war goes on basically there from you know the end of 14 until the end of 18 and it's just the same churning battle all effectively all the time. The sound of which, as the Germans, in fact, get closer and closer to Paris when the French forces kind of break down and can't really uh, hold them back, the sounds of the guns that are shelling Paris, which is 40 miles away, can be heard in the garden at Giverny. Monet is also concerned about the safety of not only his friends who live in Paris, but also a large number of his earlier works that are on the premises and, or, or in the storerooms of his dealer, Durand Well. And, you know, when a bomb falls a half a block away from Durand Well, he's very concerned that it might have been, might just as easily have fallen onto his artistic legacy. And, you know, 
he's a little bit concerned for his reputation and he's a bit vain. And and so the safety of his works actually may be his prime concern over that of, of anybody he knew. So the ongoing conflict, both in terms of the national worry or the national concern, the national anguish, and then his rather more personal feelings, makes the period from 14 to 18 a pretty tough time. And he has nonetheless managed to get himself connected enough to get the the supplies that he needs for the maintenance of his luxury lifestyle. Namely, they 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 convince they convince Monet that he should go to Amiens or or and more importantly to Reims and to paint a series of cathedrals that are that have been destroyed. So to go to the Western Front and paint cathedrals as he had painted 10 years earlier at Rouen, to paint cathedrals that were, in fact, victims of war. Ultimately, the, the commission never happened because I think to paint a ruin would be sort of antithetical to, you know, to Monet's I mean, perhaps a bit too dramatic and sentimental than Monet would have liked to be. But he did use the occasion to make sure that he could get coal for his studio, where he was painting things that had nothing to do with the war, ostensibly. Coal, gasoline for his car. He was also extremely concerned about his cigarette supply. And so he manages, really, to live the war without some of the privations of his fellow residents of Giverny because he's a VIP. And the ability to build and heat this vast studio, you know, it's as big as a baseball court, let's a basketball court, let's say. And to, to be able to maintain this studio with very high ceilings and to keep it warm at all uh, in the wintertime was really a, a, a matter of really strategic negotiation and planning on his part. Let me let me set that up just a little bit. So at the time Monet is building the new studio, he's about 73 years old, which is a heck of an age to decide you need to pause and build a new studio and then and then jump back in. And of course, he's doing it, as you mentioned, during during the war. Why does he decide he needs a new and particularly larger studio? And what does it let him do in terms of the work? The impetus for needing a bigger studio really started when in 1914, and then perhaps even more in 1915, he begins to paint paintings or want to paint paintings that are bigger than the the studio that he already has. First, he paints in a studio in the house. Then he builds a separate studio apart but it's too big, and also the studio is inconveniently located on the first floor up. And he needs a studio where paintings can go in and out, where they can be tall, you know, six feet or more, and where the things that he paints in the garden 
can be lugged back and forth from studio to garden. And then eventually in the studio, he begins to paint paintings that are not just two meters or six feet six high, but he makes them much wider than two meters. Two meters is the is in fact the the measurement of most of the paintings that then made that are made in the garden, but transferred to the studio and then enlarged into panels that measure as much as four meters and four meters and a quarter are basically 14 feet wide. Now, those things were never going to be taken back and forth to the garden. They're entirely painted indoors. And he would then line them up next to each other so that you got, you got something, for instance, that might measure as a, a full composition, it might be 44 feet wide. And so you need a really big wall to have 44 feet of, uh, of width. Let me, let me just jump in really quickly to point out that there are some great contemporary photographs of this in the catalog and that those photographs alone are a reason for people to go out and get the catalog. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yes, the studio allows him to think so much larger than he had ever literally physically been able to do in the past. And so he, you know, thank goodness he has enough money to be able to afford it because all of this work is being done without any immediate hope of profit. And in fact, in his lifetime, he only sells a handful of the paintings that he had made up to or between, let's say, 1914 and 1919. And he only sells one panel that measures anything wider than two meters. And so he he's painting all these pictures, but he's not going to sell them to anybody necessarily. And they're, they're, they're really experimental. And it's when, at the end of the war, he declares to his good friend, Clemenceau, who is the Prime Minister of France, he declares that he wants to give this gift of paintings to the nation, which starts small in number and becomes massive in number by the time he dies. He has previously not needed that room. And as I said, thank goodness he could afford to do it because it was only with that space that he was able to create in sufficient number the the big panels that would eventually, after his death, but with his participation in their arrangement, be opened at the Orangerie uh, in the Tuileries Garden in 1927. Before talking about Monet and these, these decorations and these paintings' relationship to the French decorative tradition, I want to cite one other picture that's in the catalog that I hope people go take a look at and, and, and order. It's a photograph of Monet in his studio holding a palette, and the palette is roughly the size of his torso. <laughs> so everything had to be supersized to, to make these paintings, including, <laughs> including the palette. Including the palette, yeah. The palette and the brushes um, are supersized. But imagine also the supersized orders of tubed paint that he had to make. The amount of, of oily paint coming out of tubes no bigger than a toothpaste tube, mind you, 
that he would then also frequently squeeze out onto paper, absorbent paper or blotters, so to, so as to make it slightly drier, the, let a little bit of the oil get absorbed by the paper so that the paint is not quite as unctuous and transparent, but is a little bit thicker. Again, a bit like dried up toothpaste. So you can, you can put it on first in a really thick layer, and then you could put it on in a really thick and dry layer. And that was what Monet was, was searching for to get this very matte and very textural uh, surface effect. But yes, the, the, the enormity of the enterprise, we keep reminding ourselves of how big everything had to be. And again, thank God Monet was by this point a wealthy man, so that because a, a poorer artist could never have afforded the materials to do all this. And so Monet's buying these giant canvases, buying all the paint, buying the, you know, brushes are the one thing you can kind of keep working with, but eventually they wear out too, and you've got to get a new set of brushes. The palette in general, you can scrape off. But so there's some, there's a very few things in this enterprise, by the way, that are recyclable. It's really an intense exercise and outdoes pretty much anything that, that any of his peers had ever been able to, maybe also never been inclined to do, and it is entirely done by him himself. You know, this is a project with no assistance, nobody helping him paint. The the only people who are helping him are carrying things around or rearranging his paints for him or sort of tending to his immediate needs as a kind of a handmaid, his, his stepdaughter, who then had married his son Jean, so he became so she was not only his stepdaughter but also his daughter-in-law, was called Blanche Ochade Blanche, and she was his kind of protector, enabler for that the last period of of his life. Why is Monet interested in the French decorative tradition at this point, and did it have anything to do with the war? I think Monet had envisioned the notion of of decorations in the 1890s and was thinking about a a decoration of water lilies that would sort of occupy the lower part of a wall in a in a room he then expanded that with the increased height of the decorations to making them be you know taller than he was suddenly they became really mural in their ambition. So he's, he's painting things that you have to think of as, as going onto the wall, not as a movable thing, but as part of, the, part of a three-dimensional space in which you exist and look at the works of art from from a kind of surrounding, a surround sound effect in, in, in paint. So those traditions, which are not just the glorious landscape decorated by Hubert Robert or an artist like that, but also the more homely and popular idea of a panorama, literally a kind of a, a, a traveling show that where a painting of a, of a place might be stretched out in a 360-degree room 
and you would be standing in the middle looking at space all around you. So those two kinds of ideas are known to him, and certainly they provided him with precedent. But I'm not sure it's that that really leads to his his notion of going big. I mean, they're certainly they certainly prove that it can be done. Let's say a panorama, even by a hack artist, proves that you can, in fact, paint yards and yards and yards of canvas and have them be, mo- you know, mostly connected. But then you bring what what Monet brings to the enterprise is his eye. You know the you know the wonderful quote about Cezanne and Monet, where someone says to to Cezanne in a disparaging way, "Oh, that Monet, he's only an eye," and Cezanne rep- replies, "Only an eye, yes, but what an eye!" And and really, it is the this is really the proof of the "what an eye" moniker because he he brings to it an op- a, a talent for observation and the transposition of observation into action and then the result of the action, the painting. It's truly magical what he's able to do. And and I think that you don't want to ever say that there's only one, but there is really no other painter who did it um, and who did it in this fashion, at least within Monet's lifetime. You mentioned Monet's eye, so let's uh, wrap up by talking about his eyes. When do his vision problems start, and what impact, uh, if any, do they have on the paintings he makes in the very late teens and in the 20s? Well, they start, I mean, diagnostically, he starts having problems at, at the end, end of the aughts, and cataracts are observed early on. They then, as they usually do, begin to grow, and the, you know, the changes within the eyeball uh, start changing the way he sees. Still in 1914, when he, when he begins this idea of, the, of painting large, he's seeing quite well. But by the late teens, he is certainly very concerned that he might go blind. The doctors and his friends encourage him to have a cataract operation. You know, even some of his friends have already had one, said, you know, it was no big deal. We were able to do it, etc. But Monet is terrified that the operation itself might render him blind. And already before he has the operation in the early 20s, he has been able to transcend the diminished eyesight that he's got by inventing a way of painting that can be accomplished successfully, even with the diminished capacity of seeing that he has. So my notion, when people say, oh, Monet's late work, it's all because he couldn't see. I say, Monet's late work, it's as brilliant as it is because he had to devise a way of overcoming his eye problems. And he does. And the work that he does in the ni- late 19-teens, in our exhibition, for instance, a series of Japanese bridges, which are probably from 1918, 19, maybe 20, that are absolutely glorious. And I defy anybody to say that they're not magnificent works of art. 
And if they're painted by a guy who is having a lot of trouble seeing, then how much more glorious you have to consider them. And anyway, that's my admittedly very partisan point of view on the subject. And I think that anybody who goes to see this exhibition or even just looks at the catalog or even goes to some website and sees all these things will come away very impressed. I mean, even at the opening weekend of the show in San Francisco, it comes out of Fort Worth in the summer, but the opening weekend back in February in San Francisco, there were people who had been to a lot of Monet exhibitions in their life who said to me, I've never seen anything like this. That actually is the, is the reason for doing an exhibition like this, the reason for bringing, you know, 50 some odd paintings from, I've forgotten how many different lenders, 30 some odd different lenders, and having them resonate with each other in a, in a really glorious way. And it's only by seeing them side by side rather than once every year that you get the sensation. And, and that's what a show is all about, after all, to experience things in the flesh that you otherwise could not see at the same time. We'll have images of everything we discussed on manpodcast.com, but I can't wait to see it myself. George Shackelford, thanks so much. Thank you. Anytime. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.